All right, if you will find the 22nd chapter of Jeremiah this evening, Jeremiah 22, and we are in the last section of this particular chapter. And to be honest with you, this one, this last section caused me a greater, uh, has caused me the greatest discomfort of all of them that we've covered in Jeremiah 22 so far. Uh, sometimes you come to particular texts and you, uh, you can glance at them and you can say, oh, I, I see it. Uh, it's very easy for me to see uh, the message that's there. I can see where God's placing the emphasis. Uh, I would tell you tonight that this is not one of those times. Um, I don't often give you this kind of insight, but as early as this morning, I was still struggling mightily with this. Uh, usually, by the time I get to Wednesday, I have a, a pretty good handle on the text. Uh, not perfect, of course, and uh, sometimes I come to the pulpit and I think I have it, and I realize maybe I didn't have it quite as well as I thought. Uh, but I believe, as I come tonight, I believe that God has, has opened my eyes to the truths here. Uh, but I certainly am praying that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm true to exactly what the, the, Lord's, the word of the Lord is here this evening. I want to draw your attention to just the first two verses we're going to deal with tonight, and that's verses 20 and 21. Uh, we'll deal with the others, but we'll take them as we usually do in a verse-by-verse manner. But notice as Jeremiah 22 continues in verse number 20, the Bible says, Go up to Lebanon and cry. And lift up thy voice in Bashan, and cry from the passages, for all thy lovers are destroyed. I spake unto thee in thy prosperity, but thou saidst, I will not hear. This hath been thy manner from thy youth, that thou obeyest not my voice. Look at verse 21 specifically, and I want to park here for just a few minutes and and I want to just deal with these statements here. Mark, 20, or Mark verse 21 that says, I spake unto thee in thy prosperity. That's the statement I want us to look at. And uh, note carefully the statement, I spake unto thee. I highlighted the two words, spake and thee. And the reason that I did that is that gives us an insight that this is a specific message given to a specific people. In other words, God through Jeremiah is telling these people that there is a specific message that is being delivered to them. Now, we've been dealing with some of the kings of Judah. Uh, we had dealt mostly last night with Jehoiakim, who was the son of Josiah. And we dealt with Jehoiakim, and tonight we're going to be dealing with Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakin. So we've got Jehoiakim and Jehoiakin. And I want you to notice here that as the Lord speaks directly to these people, and he's speaking to these kings, and he's speaking to the, the people of, of Israel and Jerusalem, God through the prophet says, I spake unto thee in thy prosperity. Now you can notice there's a couple of things here. Again, I had you highlight the word spake and thee. And then you can also notice prosperity. Now, one thing that God is telling Jeremiah to tell these people very carefully is that the people could never say that they went astray or turned their back on God due to ignorance. In other words, they couldn't say that we went astray because we didn't know. The Bible says here, I spake unto thee. I spoke unto you, so that cannot be your excuse. I cannot, you cannot use the excuse that you did not know. Now these words, I spake unto thee in thy prosperity, this is a condemning statement. Now on its surface, it sounds like he is giving a blessing. But we know the context of Jeremiah 22 has been dealing with rebellion and has been dealing with not treating and handling the role of the king as it should have been done. These are words of condemnation. They're words condemning the wickedness of the people and their refusal to hear and obey. We actually see there at the second part of verse 21, but thou saidst, I will not hear. So here God is saying very carefully, I spoke unto you, I spoke directly to you, so ignorance cannot be your excuse. But when did I speak to you? I spoke to you in your prosperity. 
Now, just as a general overview, let me just give you an idea of what prosperity does. Prosperity makes us feel secure. So God says this, I spoke unto you when you felt secure and safe. However, but you said, I will not hear. There is a connection between the refusal to hear and prosperity. That's what the connection is. This prosperity was affecting their ability or their desire, I might say, to obey and heed the word of God. When God speaks to us, when God deals with us, and he calls us through his word to the right way, and we refuse to hear and follow his way, our wickedness and our sin is unexcusable. In other words, you and I cannot claim ignorance. We can't say, God, I didn't know. We can't say to the Lord, you've never spoken to me. You've never given me a command. You've never said these things to me. But when we refuse to hear and follow, we cannot find an excuse when we suffer under his hand of correction. Now notice again, I spake unto thee in thy prosperity. Now let's deal with the, the word prosperity a little bit further. I told you on its highest view, prosperity is a feeling of security. When you are prosperous materially, you will feel more secure. It's almost a proven fact. People that feel secure financially often feel safe. They feel secure. They often feel more safe and secure than somebody who in a material or financial realm is not quite as prosperous. But I will tell you that prosperity can be a dangerous time. Whether it's materially or financially, or I would even tell you this, uh, we can be guilty of being too secure spiritually. Where we believe that I am so prosperous that there is nothing that can touch me. The word prosperity, taking this down another level, prosperity gives us a false sense of security or safety, but the word prosperity can also be translated tranquility. Tranquility means something that is very peaceful, it's very calm, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it feels uh, like it's where you want to be. Tranquility. The Lord's telling the people through Jeremiah, I spoke to you in your tranquility or in your time when you felt safe, you felt secure. But notice their response was, but you will not hear. Now notice, uh, this is a direct refusal. It says, but thou saidst, I will not hear. Now again, there's a connection between prosperity and refusing to hear. Now does this mean everybody in a prosperity position or a prosperous position will not hear? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that there is something here, there's a danger there, that when we are in a prosperous time, we might be tempted to not listen to the voice of God. Now again, who gives us our prosperity? God gives us those things. God gives us materially. God gives us financially. God gives us spiritually. However, the sin of the people is further aggravated by the reality that it was God that gave them this prosperity, and yet they're turning their back on the Word of God. God had sent the prophets. God had made known to His people His commandments. But God also makes Himself known to us by his blessing and mercy that he bestows upon us. The two things all of us have in common tonight, if we're believers, is this. We know God has spoken to us, and we know that God has provided numerous, too numerous to count, blessings in our life. We are all tonight prosperous people because of God's mercy. That prosperity can cause us to grow a little insensitive to the calling and the voice of God. It's ironic that the very God who gives us this prosperity, often our reaction is, in our sinfulness, we often turn away from the very one who gave us what we have. In fact, we know for sure that God, when he's dealing with Israel, God had not only chosen them, he had reconciled them to himself. 
The nation of Israel is indeed a chosen people of God. And we know that Israel plays a part in the entire, what will become the entire church. It will include all the saints from every age. But there's no doubt about it that in Scripture, God has put Israel in a particular place of prominence. Now, we understand that they were the, ones, they were the first ones to receive the oracles of God. They were the first ones to receive some of these commandments and these principles. In other words, if anyone should have known the Word of God and known about the blessings of God, it would have been Israel. They should have known these things. As a matter of fact, it tells us, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15, is an illustration of what happened to Israel as they became more and more prosperous. Listen to what it says, Deuteronomy 32, 15. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he, that's Jeshurun, forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. There's a couple interesting things about that, that verse. Number one, let's deal with the name Jeshurun first. Nothing in the Bible is by coincidence. Everything has a reason and a purpose. The name Jeshurun is a name of endearment. It's a word, a name that was used for the endearment of Israel. It literally means, I get this, it literally means upright. Upright means to act in a proper manner. And here's what it says about Jeshurun, this term of endearment for Israel. The more they received, the fatter they got, so to speak, the more they forsook God. Their name means upright. In this text, this name is ironically used since the people were not behaving uprightly. They were not living up to their name. They were living against that. Now, the phrase waxed fat, every time I come across that, it's always, it's a funny expression. But literally, what the word or the phrase means, it's an image of becoming insensitive. Or we might even say numb to. We're, we're not feeling that any longer. It, it, it's not having an effect anymore. So again, we read that verse and it says, Thou art covered with fatness or insensitivity, and they lightly esteem the rock of his salvation. In that text, the word rock is capitalized. The word R is capitalized, which is a reference back to God. It, it goes all the way back and points towards Christ. It's a, a, the rock of his salvation. To lightly esteem the rock of their salvation literally means to despise the Savior. So when we get these thoughts tonight and we think about this, the very one who has spoken to us, his word, who has given us all of our blessings, has provided our prosperity, is the very one that if we're not careful, the more prosperous we get, and that could be spiritually, financially, material, whatever you want to say, it's, we've got to be careful that we might wax fat or become insensitive to the word of God. Now you ask people today, would you rather be poor or prosperous? And almost 90, probably 100% say I'd rather be prosperous. And again, prosperity is not the problem. But prosperity can be a time of danger for the believer because when we're in that situation, sometimes we are tempted to grow insensitive. Why? Because prosperity makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. Sometimes we become, we feel secure in our own knowledge of the Lord. We say, I know all I need to know about the Lord, or I know everything about God. I am, I'm God's chief encyclopedia. You want to know about God? I know about God. That's growing insensitive to the realities of who God really is. So I wrote this thought down. When God's people are in times of prosperity or tranquility, they often fail to acknowledge God's goodness and kindness toward them. And he said that's a pretty broad general statement. It is. But I added this thought. And instead, become rebellious and abuse the blessing of God who gave them the prosperity to begin with. 
Notice it's when God's people in times of prosperity. We often fail to acknowledge God's goodness and God's kindness towards us. Remember, this whole chapter has been about God warning them. It wasn't that they didn't know. And yet, king after king, most of the kings, it is said about most of the kings who sat upon the throne of Judah, it is said about most of them, they did evil in the sight of God. Josiah was one of those exceptions. His son, Jehoiakim, did not do right in the sight of God. And like his father now, Jehoiakim is going to be found not following the ways of God also. John Calvin said this about prosperity. He says, nothing is more dangerous than to be blinded by prosperity. Prosperity inebriates men so that they take delights in their own merits. I don't agree with everything Calvin says or believed. I agree with a lot of it. I agree with that. Nothing, he says, is more dangerous than to be blinded. Now, notice he doesn't say nothing's more dangerous than prosperity. He says nothing's more dangerous than being blinded by prosperity. It's just like money. Money's not evil. What's the Bible say? It's the love of money that is the evil. So when someone says all money's evil, no, it's not. Prosperity's evil. No, it's not. It's what do I do with that? Being blinded by prosperity is the problem, or loving money is the problem. So Jeremiah is sent to now preach to now the succession of kings. Now we are to Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim. Now, it gets confusing because Jehoiakim actually has three different names. He's also referred to as Jeconiah or Kaniah. So they got this the same guy. You've got Jehoiakim, and you've got Jeconiah, and there he's actually got a, a Jeconias in other parts of the Bible. I mean, it's just, it sometimes is overwhelmingly confusing. Which king are we talking about here? But notice again what he tells and what Jeremiah is preaching. And he's told to go up to Lebanon and cry and lift up the voice in Bashan and cry from the passages, for all thy lovers are destroyed. Literally, what this is referring to is not love in the sense that we're thinking about, but what he is being told is all of your allies, all of, the, all of your help is no longer there. Believe it or not, there was a time when Judah, Israel, God's people, had allies. And he's telling them that your allies are gone. Your, your source of help is gone. Again, not because God just a ruthless Dictator, but because he had warned them to follow his word. What Jeremiah is telling them in verse number 20 is he's preaching to these Jews and he's, he's dispelling their presumption, that's what's going to lead us into verse 21, that they would be safe, though God was now against them. Jeremiah shows them that they are deceived in promising themselves exemption from the judgment of God. In other words, they are guilty of saying, God's not going to judge me. That's why they didn't want to hear. God's not going to pour out judgment on us. We're God's chosen people. Look at our prosperity. Look what we have. God certainly is not going to do anything to us. So Jeremiah is sending this message. He says, go up and cry, but this is a vain cry. Their cry is not going to be heard. Jeremiah has to preach against the madness of promising themselves safety as they continue to bring the wrath of God upon them because they would not hear. That's what's happening in this text. Now, we started off by dealing with the prosperity and the aspect of it because I wanted us to see what this was leading us into. He tells them, go up and call anyone you want. Ask for help, ask for deliverance from the wrath of God, but your call for help is going to fail. Again, why? Because God is a ruthless, angry God? No, because they, did, they failed to obey and heed his words. Now notice again, we already dealt with most of verse 21, but I want you to notice we didn't deal with this when he says, I spake unto thee in thy prosperity, but thou says, I will not hear. Look at this little truth here. This hath been thy manner from thy youth. What's been your manner? That you won't hear 
that thou obeyest not my voice. You know, we talk about the long suffering and patience of God. Here is God saying that right then. This has been your conduct since youth. Your conduct has been such. You don't obey my voice and you will not hear my commands. You will not hear my word. God here through Jeremiah is showing the people that they were so wicked that their rebellion had prevailed since their youth. Jeremiah is telling them, listen, it's, it's as if God's saying, you cannot make any excuses. It's not like you haven't had a teacher. It's not like I haven't been giving you my word. It's not like I haven't been giving you my wisdom, my understanding. You know what happens the longer you fail to heed the word of God? You will literally become hardened in your sinful ways. The more you reject God's commandments, the harder you will come become towards those things. So this is, this is not some new sin that crept up into their life. This has been their pattern. Again, we could make a lot of applications. That was one of my big struggles with trying to prepare these messages. Jer Jeremiah is by far the most challenging book I've ever preached through because it is, it is so relevant for what we're talking about, but sometimes it's, it's hard to pull it all towards what's happening today. But then I begin realizing this. The principles are exactly the same. What he's telling them in Jeremiah's day holds true for us today. If this has been our manner of life, that all of our life we fail, we say, I'm not going to listen to God and I'm not going to obey his voice. The longer you do that, the more hardened you will become to his word. And that principle carries on even today. God's telling them, I'm finding you. Literally, what he's, the thing I thought about is they were unteachable. They, if you won't hear, you're unteachable. The most, the most dangerous person, persons I've ever dealt with, and again, there are men that have got much more ministry experience than I have, but in the years I've been a pastor or serving youth or whatever it is, the most dangerous people I've dealt with are not the false prophets and they're not even the false teachers or even people that come from, from places we don't necessarily agree with. It's believers who have grown unteachable. In other words, they become so secure in what they know that you can't tell them anything. They just simply say, I know it all. All I know, and you've, you've all heard them, they say things like this. I know what the Word of God says, but... I know what the Bible says, however. I know what the Bible says. That's the idea here. They're unteachable. What was causing them to be unteachable? It was their, this appearance of prosperity. Prosperity gave them a false sense of security. They felt like, God, I'm one of God's chosen people. God's not going to touch me. Look at everything God's blessed me with. I'm not going to be under the judgment of God. I'm not going to face the wrath of God because I'm one of his. And look at all that he's given me. That's the idea here. Now look what he says in verse 22. The wind shall eat up all thy pastors and they, thy lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then shalt thou be ashamed and confounded for all thy wickedness. The first time I read this and I saw the word pastor, of course, that makes your, makes your ears perk up. However, further investigating the passage, the word pastors here is not so much, and again, it doesn't mean it's not important to pastors today, but it's more directed at the governors and the leaders and the rulers and the kings who sat upon this, this throne because what they were supposed to do, if you remember all the way back in Jeremiah 22, the very first part of, of chapter th or verse 3, remember when they were told, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the spoil out of the hand of the oppressor and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. These kings were to per perform or provide a type of pastoral care. In other words, these kings were to be as shepherds. Now, again, I don't consult a lot of other translations because I never see the need to because I think the King James gives it just as clear as any of them. But one of the other translations, and it's a, it's, it's a literal thought, the word pastor is also translated shepherd. And look at what he's saying here. He's saying that because of this, the wind shall eat up all of thy shepherds. 
All of those that were caring for you, all of those rulers and kings that were going to supposed to provide care for you will be gone. God was telling them that because of their presumption, everything was going to come to an end and emptiness. You would be left with nothing. Their governors, these rulers, these kings that are supposed to help you and care for you will vanish away like the wind because of your abuse of the blessings of God. Listen, one of the most dangerous things other than being unteachable is abusing the blessings of God. And again, this was a thought I was having trouble with today. What is it to abuse the blessings of God? And I could only think of this. It's becoming insensitive to them. That's abuse of the blessings of God. When I consent, spend a single day, and I can say the blessings of God really don't matter or I take them for granted. I use the prosperity that I have and I say, I am prosperous. I've got the hand of blessing upon me. Eh, the word of God's not so important now because look what God's given me. Now these kings... Again, each one of them, I think if you study the life of most of these kings, you will find that they were all guilty in some way of growing insensitive to the blessings of God and prosperity was a big part of their failure. Again, not the only reason, but part of it. Look at verse 23. O inhabitant of Lebanon, thou makest that makest thy nest in the cedars, how gracious shalt thou be when pangs come upon thee, the pain as of a woman in travail. Almighty God here through Jeremiah is repeating much the same of what he says in verse number 20 about going up into Lebanon and crying, but he uses different terms here. He preaches that the Jews are not going to gain anything by believing they're safe. And he gives this perfect illustration. He says, it will be like a woman who suddenly goes into labor. Many women, before labor pains start, it's completely tranquil, it's peaceful, there's no warning, there's no notice, and suddenly they say, and there's a pain. He's telling them why you're sitting in this tranquil, prosperous situation where you think everything is good. There's no trouble coming. He said this judgment, this wrath is going to come just as suddenly as the birth pains for a woman in labor come on. Again, that's often how things happen. One minute we believe that all things are well, we're doing well, God's not judging us, God's, we're, we're fine, God's, we're prosperous, we've got everything that we need, we have everything that we want, and suddenly pain comes and what was joyful moments ago now becomes painful. This is really deep. It's really, when you think about the illustrations, it's very practical, but it's very deep as to what he's talking about here. Now, verse 24, he gets specific now when he starts talking about Jehoiakim. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, or that's the same name as Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. I got stuck here for a few minutes today. But then you start looking at it. This is a promise that God makes. As I live, saith the Lord. That's all, but it could read this way. I'm promising you. Here's the circumstances. Here's how it is. Jehoiakim, who's also called Jeconiah, is the son of Jehoiakim. God is literally saying about Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim. Okay, everybody following me? We're on Jehoiakim. God is literally saying this about the wrath that's coming on the Jews and on Jehoiakim. God is literally saying, even if Jehoiakim was the signet ring on my right hand, now follow this, I will still pour out my wrath upon you. Now just think about the symbolism here for a minute. Here's these blessed people who've received the prosperous, God, prosperous hand of God, the blessings of God, and they are taking it for granted. They've grown insensitive to his blessings. 
He said, this is how serious this is, that even if Jehoiakim was the signet ring on my right hand, and when God mentions his right hand, we're talking about the powerful hand. A signet ring was a ring that was used by kings to stamp their approval, literally, that would have an insignia of their, their, uh, their rule and their reign, and each one was individual. And when they would give an order or a decree, they would take that ring and they would sink it into a clay-like or a wax-like substance, and it was a sign of approval. It was a sealed, it was a done deal. And he says this, even if Jehoiakim was a signet ring on my right hand, he still says, yet I would pluck thee thence. In other words, I would remove you. Something interesting about Jehoiakim's reign, he only reigned or ruled for three months. It's one of the shorter reigns of all the kings. That signet ring, which represented the king's ownership and authority. What God is saying here is God is rejecting Jehoiakim as his representative. In other words, he's clearly saying Jehoiakim is not a representation, a true representation of who I am. And even if he was the right hand, if it's the signet ring on my right hand, I've still plucked thee out. And I will give thee, look at this, into the hand of them that seek thy life. The symbolism here is absolutely astounding. What would he have to do to give him into the hand of them that seek thy life? The picture here is remarkable. He just used the illustration. If he was the signet ring on my hand, he's literally, think about the symbolism here. I would take that ring off and I would place it into the hand of those that are seeking your life. It's pretty powerful. And he goes two steps further. He says, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest. Now this is a pronouncement of wrath and judgment coming upon Jehoiakim. He's telling him, that literally, I will give him into the hand of them that seeks his life and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. God, through Jeremiah, tells him that although he is seated upon the throne of David, he will become an exile. Now, I can tell you something about the, the kings that sat upon the throne of David. None of them thought in their wildest dreams that they would ever be driven into exile because they were seated upon the throne of David. Their safety and their security came in this. I'm seated upon the throne of God. I'm seated upon the throne of David. God's not going to do anything with me because look where he's placed me. He's put me in the place of authority. And there's where all these kings that did evil in the sight of God made their horrific mistake. They believed that because they were placed in a place of authority and a place of prosperity, that they were safe and secure from the wrath of God, even though they did not follow his word. God declares that even Jehoiakim, who was clearly exalted by God. How did Jehoiakim get to the throne? Because he was Jehoiakim's son? Well, in succession, yes, but that was the hand of God that put him there. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we started this series again. Every ruler and every king in every land is placed there by the hand of God, and they are all have a responsibility to rule and reign according to godly principles, and all will be held to that standard. But these were supposed to be God's kings, these were supposed to be the men who would represent who God clearly was. Yet, we know that because of the reign of, of Jehoiakim, whose reign only lasted three months, he will later reveal an acceptance in another king. We're not going to get into that tonight. But it would come through Jehoiakim's grandson. But it's much later down the road. But then notice here what it tells us. Jehoiakim who's called here Kaniah, he's, he's this prosperous kingdom he thought would never end. He came from the stock of David, thought the promise, because of God's promises, he could never be taken from his house. 
Although we know this, Jehoiakim abused God's promises. He took the blessings and prosperity of God for granted. Now, verse 25 is a further, again, I already talked about this, but verse 25 is a further explanation of verse 24. God's comparing here the exile of Jehoiakim by illustrating, again, that removal of that ring from, from the hand of God. And that literally takes place when Jehoiakim is deprived of his kingdom and is later made subject to the king of Babylon. You can read about this in, in 2 Kings and also in the Chronicles, where literally we read this taking place, where Jehoiakim, his reign comes to an end, and he's placed in subject to the king of Babylon. He goes from the king sitting on the throne of David now to under the rule of the king of Babylon. And the Bible tells us, and if you read those accounts and summarize, you will read and find out that the king of Babylon spares Jehoiakim's life at first, but Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim lives in fear of the king of Babylon. That prophecy, this prophecy, verse 24 and 25, were completely fulfilled. Jehoiakim experienced exactly what Jeremiah was saying would happen to him. Now, verse 26 adds something more to this. It says, And I will cast thee out and thy mother, now this is Jehoiakim's mother, that bear thee into another country where ye were not born, and there shall ye die. Verse 27, But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. In order to just emphasize how deep this rebellion in Jehoiakim was, it's recorded here that Jehoiakim's own mother would be taken captive with him. Now you say, well, that happens, right? Often, if you read the accounts of kingdoms and rulers who were brought down and they're taken into captivity, oftentimes those countries that took captive those other people, the females were often spared they were not taken into exile literally for the sake of their gender. And because in this case, this woman was an elderly woman. She would have been elderly when all this took place. And yet, God executed his judgment not just on King Jehoiakim, but also on his mother. Which tells us somehow, some way, she was involved in the sin and the iniquity that Jehoiakim was committing. Verse 27, but to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. They will want to return back to where they came from, and they will never return. Jeremiah is telling them that Jehoiakim and his mother would both die in a foreign land, and now Jeremiah is confirming that. This idea that thinks that the king of Babylon is going to be merciful to Jehoiakim and his mother and those taken in captivity thinking that Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to come and he's going to seek us mercy, he's going to grant us mercy and grace. Yet Jehoiakim, we know that's not the way the story ends. But then verse 28, Jeremiah gives a almost what sounds to be, this is too hard to believe that it could actually be true. Notice he asks a series of questions. Jeremiah speaks in verse 28 of what seems to be incredible and almost unbelievable. He says this words. He says, Is this man, Kaniah or Jehoiakim, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? It's questions that Jeremiah, he's speaking, he's, he's almost assuming the character of a person who's looking from the outside into the circumstances and he's greatly wondering. And Jeremiah's asking these questions. Is it possible, literally, that Jehoiakim is going to be driven into exile? And this king who is seated upon the throne of David is going to die a miserable death? What, what, what's the reason? Why would Jeremiah, what's his purpose in this? We know that's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But here's something about the Jews. This is why this is important. The Jews believed that the kingdom in which they were seeing would last forever. In other words, in the Jewish mind, 
They could not come to grips with the fact that the kingdom they saw in front of them, they could not come to grips that that was not going to last forever. They believed it would. Jeremiah's purpose is to show them that this kingdom is being brought down because of their unwillingness to obey and follow the ways of God. This is used by Jeremiah to remove this type of thinking, that if this can happen to Jehoiakim, a man who is seated upon the throne of David, this would serve as a warning. Jeremiah is asking these questions as somehow as a, a form of irony. He could have just spoken in plain words. Is this really happening? But yet he's using this for the sake of others. He's almost asking the questions as if, is God really pouring out his wrath upon Jehoiakim? This seems like a monstrous idea. How could this possibly be? But again, it's instructive. And then the last two verses of this chapter, and it's, they're, they're profound. Jeremiah says, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, there's a, there's a promise, write ye this man childless, that's Jehoiakim, a man that shall not, watch this, prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Jeremiah repeats the word earth three times. I'll talk about that in just a moment, why he's doing that. But Jeremiah is doing all he can, and God is doing all he can to subdue the wickedness of the Jews who had so hardened themselves to the extent that here's what started to happen. Even the most direct warnings of God were no longer affecting them. They weren't moved by them anymore. The Bible says it's a promise that this man, Jehoiakim, write ye this man childless. Now, if you stop there, someone's going to say, uh-oh, that's a contradiction because I know Jehoiakim had a child. If you read your Bible, you'll know this because 1 Chronicles 3.17 and Matthew 1.12 tell us that there was a son born to Jehoiakim. But you've got to read further because here's what he says. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper. How will he not prosper? By sitting upon the throne of David. In other words, here's what's said. Jehoiakim will never, his son will not be seated upon the throne of David as his father was. That's what it literally means. He had a son physically. But no son of his. Now we know that later there is a promise to a grandson, but not his son. But notice he says that seated upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. What a sad calamity that's happened here. The throne of David would later face and be trodden down for many ages. What used to be thought of the throne of David suddenly became a throne of reproach. It became, no, there was no authority, there was no respect to it. It became literally something that was simply just trodden under man's feet. His entire seed, his entire line, Jehoiakim would fall under the curse of God. Now going back to what he says here by saying earth, earth, earth. He's showing that all men should be a witness of God's wrath and its being just. In other words, what happened to them was God acting in a just manner. It was to serve as a perpetual reminder of the seriousness of God and the seriousness of not abusing the prosperity that God has given you. The old Puritan preacher wrote this, Thomas Watson. Some of you, if you've never read any of his materials, occasionally there'll be one in the fellowship center there. Thomas Watson wrote from a very, um, a very tender heart. He, he, when you read his materials, he, he reminds you of Jeremiah the weeping prophet. 
He just he wrote in that manner. He said this, People are usually better in adversity than prosperity. A prosperous condition is not always so safe. True, it is more pleasing to the flesh, but it's not always best. In a prosperous state, there is more burden. Many look at the shining and glittering of prosperity, but not at the burdens of prosperity. As we end this chapter, there almost seems to be no hope. I mean, look at the last phrases. A man shall, that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. It sounds as if there is absolutely, positively no hope. But what's interesting is, is we've got to keep some things in mind. While most of those who sat upon the throne of David did evil in the sight of God, and most were guilty of the very things Jeremiah is preaching against, we've got to remember the preaching of another prophet by the name of Ezekiel. If you want to turn there, you can. I've got it written down here. But in Ezekiel 21, verses 24 through 27, here's where our hope comes from. And again, here's in our practical application. We think about wicked kings. We think about wicked rulers. And we wonder, is, any t- is this ever going to be made right? Ezekiel says through a prophecy, it will be made right one day. Here's what he says in Ezekiel 21, 24 through 27. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God. There's a promise. Because I say that ye are come to remembrance, ye shall be taken with the hand. And thou profane wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem. That's another word for the crown. And take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn... And I'm repeating this intention because if the Bible repeats it, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more. And I love this. Until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. You realize what he's talking about is he will overturn, overthrow all of these kingdoms and all of these rules who were not right, but he said there's coming a day when he who has the right, who has the authority to take that seat upon that throne, when he comes, I will give it to him. Who was Ezekiel prophesying about? He was prophesying about the coming of Christ himself, that when Christ would come, Christ would have the rightful place and the rightful authority. Folks, the kingdom belongs to God. It belongs to Christ. And when we stop tonight and we think about this triple reference here of overturn, overturn, overturn it, what does that tell us? It indicates a certainty and a completeness. In other words, there's coming a day that when Christ comes, who has the right to reign as established, he will make all things right. You realize that There really was no true Davidic king, truly, until Christ appeared. And when Christ appeared, it was the evidence and the authority that his reign and rule, and more importantly, the kingdom belongs to him. This kingdom now, this throne was reserved for the perfect king. Although most of these kings failed, although most of these kings did wicked and evil in their own, in their, in their own life, and they, they abused the blessings of God, and in their prosperity, they refused to hear, they refused to acknowledge. Even though the throne of David had been exposed to sin, wickedness, dishonor, and reproach to other nations, the coming of Christ... The coming of Christ would make all things right. His glory, the King of Kings, we talk, we pray that, we talk about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You realize when we talk about the King of Kings, we're talking about that very same throne of David in which Jesus himself came through, comes through. And that's why he's called the King of Kings, because he is above all of them. And he has no failure in him. 
And he is the one that we turn our eyes to and we look to. But we learn the lessons from Jeremiah. We learn the realities here that God expects things from his people. And he certainly expected things from his kings. Tonight, I just want to challenge us as we think about this. And I want us to think about our own circumstances. And I want us to think about how has God spoken to you? How has God spoken to me? And by the way, if we're in Christ tonight, there's no safer, more secure place to be. But I will also tell you that that sometimes can lead us to start taking it for granted and start saying, hey, I'm one of God's. Nothing bad can happen. Look at everything He's given me. I'm prosperous. I'm safe. I'm secure. And you are eternally secure. If you're in Christ, no man can pluck you out of His hand. But I think the lessons here for tonight really are very clear that our prosperity can be a very dangerous time if we're not careful. God may bless you materially. He may bless you financially. But I would tell you, just like I mentioned at the beginning, oftentimes when God's people are in times of prosperity, we often fail to acknowledge God's goodness and His kindness. Tonight it may be nothing more than just saying, God, you know, I have, I have failed to acknowledge what you've given me. I have failed to simply praise you for all you've given me blessing-wise. Listen, it sounds strange, I know. You know, the world lives on a system that says, the more I gain, the safer I'll be. It's the mentality of the world. The more I gain, the safer I'll be. There are people today that say, if I gain this much, I'll be safe if our country collapses. If I have this, I'll be safe if something happens. Listen, the only safety, the only safety that's truly going to last is found in Christ. Anything else? Again, God may bless you financially, materially. Again, that's not the goal. You just simply thank God that he's given you what he's given you. In thy prosperity, I spake unto thee, but thou saidst, I will not hear. I hope that that's not our testimony tonight. I hope we can say, God, when you speak to me, I want to be obedient. I want to listen to what you're telling me. And I'm not going to use this prosperity to deceive me. I'm, going, I'm not going to be blinded by this. My prosperity, I'm going to be, it's going to remind me of your goodness and what you've done for me. Let's stand if you would.